Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's session of Two Points of View at Two. Uh, I am Rex Black, president of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Uh, since 1994, we've delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. Uh, we have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services for companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. Um, before I introduce today's guest, a couple of things. Uh, you, those of you who are used to seeing me in a, in a suit, you will notice that I'm in the RBCS t-shirt instead because, hey, it's COVID days. And another thing that I'll mention is that Zoom has gone from being a mediocre uh, product to being an absolutely lousy product in the last few days. Uh, according to our guest, he's had some, some bad experiences with it, with maybe one or two of which he'll share. Um, but we are, we are doing the best we can. Unfortunately, we cannot turn on our camera, so you will not be able to see Rob, which is sad because he's considerably better looking than I am. And uh, also, it will be somewhat disconcerting. So as Rob put it, imagine that this is a call-in radio show. So on that note, I'm happy to welcome and introduce Rob Suburin uh, to this presentation, where we are going to discuss how to blend exploratory and automated testing to address um, uh problems and, and uh, you know, be effective in, in, uh, in your test coverage. Um, so the, the use of, of test automation will allow you to, will free up your, your manual testers, right? Um, free them up to do what? Well, exploratory testing, of course. So Rob's going to tell you about that. Uh, Rob Zaburin has more than 38 years of management experience uh, leading teams of software development professionals. He is a well-respected member of the software engineering community and has trained, managed, mentored, and coached thousands of top professionals in the field. Uh, he frequently speaks at conferences. Remember conferences when we used to get together in person and talk? Uh, and he writes on software engineering, SQA, testing, management, and internationalization. He is the author of I Am A Bug, which is the popular software testing children's book that, uh, that all children of software testers should read. I know mine did. Um, Robert is also an adjunct professor of software engineering at McGill University and the principal consultant, president, and janitor of amibug.com, Inc. That's A-M-I-B-U-G.com. So, Rob, welcome. Thank you, Rex. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Appreciate it. Great to have you. Um, I guess I should have had this slide up while I was introducing you, but there's there's Rob's <laughs> bio once again. Um, Rob and I have worked together on a whole bunch of uh, training projects over the years. We we were co-adjunct professors at University of California Berkeley for a uh, sort of graduate level. Uh, what did you what would you call that seminar symposium? Well, it was, it was a sort of very specialized uh, training. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you'd say symposium style, but it was really cool. We had last chance to do, do some really cool stuff. I have to say, that was one of the coolest training gigs I ever had in my life. We, we got to deep dive into, yep. uh, I guess it was teaching uh, embedded programmers, doing IoT stuff, uh, how to sort of work uh, uh, really effective testing into their workflow and get it done, you know, with lots of exercises and homework assignments mm -hmm. and exam questions. And it was just amazing experience. It, it was great stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
and and went surprisingly smoothly given that the the students were English was a second language for them. Um, I thought they did they did very very well. So yeah, probably the third or fourth language for some of them too. It was <laughs> impressive. Could could have been yeah they they were an impressive bunch so yeah I agree that was a lot of fun. We also did a cool gig over the last couple of years, Rex, when we. We, we were probably one of the first projects that got hit by the COVID thing, and we had to change in midstream. Yeah. Major American company in their transition to sort of using, uh, you know, BDD testing as part of their development process as instead of as an after thing. Yeah. Pretty cool project. Yeah, that was a test design using BDD courses. Uh, yeah. a, a, good, a good course. Hopefully someday COVID days will be over and we'll get to restart that. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Cool. Anyhow, we're here now. So we're here. We're here now. So let's talk. Um, so I kind of queued this up, um, and so um, you know, you, we 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 automate. Everybody loves test automation. Um, test automation is great, but the thing with test automation is, if you think about software testing, you know, we, there there are two sort of partially overlapping, if you think Venn diagram aspects of software testing. There's the verification part which is where we're checking to make sure that the software behaves as we said it was gonna behave according to some specification. And then there's the validation part, which is where we're checking to make sure that the software does uh, what people need it to do, right? And right. those roughly correspond to Crosby's definition of quality on the one hand, right? Conformance to specifications and Duran's definition of quality on the other hand, um, uh, fitness for use, right? Exactly. So, so uh, automation could do all sorts of good stuff for us from a verification point of view, because if you think of the automation, automated tests as a form of uh, executable specifications, then you know, you're off to the races. But, but the validation part is, is where the humans come in, right? So maybe we could, you could talk a little bit about you know, some of the, the, the challenges that, um, that, that you've encountered when you see people like trying to figure out, well, what, what, what do I do with my manual testers now that I've got all these automated tests? I, I think that I, I run into, just, just as you do, I think um, what, what I call a mythology, <laughs> what, what people believe. And it sort of, it biases how they approach work, which is really interesting. Um, the, 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 the four myths that related to this subject I see is that for, first myth is that uh, all exploratory testing is manual testing. That, that's a myth. I mean, it, it, it certainly uh, is cognitive testing, but frick, use whatever tools you can to get this thing done. If you can write a program to help you explore and learn things, and uh, uh, it's great. Uh, some of the best validation work I've done in my career uh, involved uh, using a lot of automation tools to help do it. And it's not that the tool was telling me what is correct from a domain perspective, but the tool was just enabling me to observe and see things and bring things to light. And then if I'm capturing expertise, like I did this in the fashion industry and in the medical industry, where I had crazy domain expertise that was really, really hard to understand, unless you really like get a master's degree or a doctorate in that specialty. And, and yet, I needed to be able to check like uh, 30, 40,000 different cases. And how do you do that when, when you have, you need the expert. The expert can't sit there with you for 10 or 30,000 things. So <laughs> what you do is you figure out and you capture things and figure out ways to sort of guide you and say, okay, well, this one now is suspicious. You don't know if it's true or false, but you know, 
suspicious. And you can bring that one and review it with the expert and then build on and on and on. And so there's a lot of sort of things you can actually do to automate that process without replacing the domain expert. I'm not suggesting here magical AI automation that replaces the need for, for domain expertise, far from it, but just pragmatic automation to help you observe and see things and then treating that like a sort of a tool, like a, like a blade on a Swiss army knife. And you've heard me use these metaphors before, Rex. Sure, of course. You basically you drive in there and you say, hey, now I need to write a script to do this or a script to do that, and you do it. Um, so, so I think for validation, uh, it's really, for me, it's been critical to be able to, uh, to, to have as much leverage as I can. And now the tools are getting better and better and better to, to do that. However, there's myths, right? Like, for example, this, this myth about automation, like all automation is regression testing. And the whole, and I don't want to be critical of, of individuals here, but I see so much DevOps, CI, domain stuff that's pushing automation. And they sort of say, yeah, everything has to be automated. Well, maybe in the CI pipeline, continuous integration pipeline, mm -hmm. you need to do a lot of automated checking, as you were suggesting when you started. But it doesn't mean that all automation is that type of testing. Right, that's of course. Far, like, far, you, far from true. And if, right. you, if you take it now and you separate the automation from the regression, you start realizing that, wait a sec, every automated script I make doesn't have to run forever. Maybe it just has to be something that's useful while I'm trying to learn about this particular thing. And so you sort of say, I can use automation to help me do something better without having to have that nightmare of, I got to maintain it for the rest of my life, sort of. <laughs> that's true, Rex. It's, it's like, oh, yeah. No, I know. And, well, and that throws people off. It's like they, they think, oh, no, all automation has to be this perfect thing we're going to run 10,000 times and we have to maintain forever. Well, it might have to run for a few days or a couple of weeks, but not for the rest of your life. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, you know, so, uh, yeah, you're, what you said just triggered two thoughts for me here. My video's back. Yes, yes. This, I found the hidden, I found the hidden <laughs> setting, which was, yeah. So there, there, there you go. Welcome, Rob, in person. Hey. Uh, um, awesome. Thank you. Um, so that triggered two thoughts for me. The, the, um, you know, not all automation is regression testing, of course. Two, so two examples I can think of, uh, the, the, um, use of, of, um, uh, you know, basically endless random input testing, right. Sometimes referred to as dumb monkeys. Um, uh, that, monkeys, dumb monkeys. Yes. Uh, no, yeah. Lyman's huh? no, excuse me. Will Lyman, when he wrote the articles yeah, about right. the, the intelligent monkey, right? The monkey yeah. the robots. Yep. Well, and that, that brings me to the next thing that I thought of is just an example of, of um, automation that's not necessarily regression testing. Um, we, uh, my associates and I helped a client build a tool once that was able to read their machine-readable specifications for their um, data capture um, mm -hmm. Uh, appliance is a, is a special FDA approved appliance that's used to capture data during drug trials. Um, mm. And so they have to have these, these very um, uh, formalized uh, specifications for review by the FDA. Well, it turned out that those were machine readable and machine parsable. So we were able to build a smart monkey that would read those specs and auto generate tests from the specs 
um, to the point of being able to actually verify that the displays on the screens were correct and it would run, you started and it would just take a random walk through the, mm -hmm. through the, the, the menu structure because it was a hierarchical kind of menu. Mm -hmm. And it would just run indefinitely. Um, what year was that? Was that recent or was that a few years back? 2005, 2006. Okay. That's, that smells like that. of some cool stuff I've seen uh, over the years. Model-based testing. <laughs> yeah, and it was, yeah. was uh, Harry Robinson and the, I, and the NASA people were doing that type of stuff. And that was an inspiration to, um, to a lot of people who moved into the world of Gherkin and stuff like that. Because right. they want to say, how can we make the specifications so that it's automatable? Um, right. That's cool. If you can get parsable stuff and then turn that into um, to test, that's cool. That's that's sort of um, exploratory in nature in, in some ways, but it's definitely non-regression. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's the less... tests are different every time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Unless, unless you force them to be the same, right? I mean, it used a random number, but you could it would save the seed at the beginning of each run. So if you wanted to reproduce the exact yeah. flow. You could yeah. you could manually give it the seed and it would run through that exact flow again. But on, on a related uh, thing, I did a, um, a radiology project uh, a little bit, maybe three four years after the one you just described, and this was a problem. They were having um, really weird bugs and mm -hmm. uh, hard to hard to figure out and reproduce in the class in their uh, development environment. And so what I did was I, I worked with them. And we made an automated harness that became part of their normal day-by-day -day workflow. It wasn't a regression test. It was sort of to play back log files. And they were using a medical protocol at the time. It was HL7. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yep. But they, so they had a HL7 log. And what I did was using Perl scripts. Uh, at the time, I was scripting with Perl. My apologies to everyone who doesn't like Perl. Perl is, is cool. Syntactically tricky, not as smooth as Python or Ruby, but in its day, it was a really useful tool. <laughs> and um, I have to say that I wrote an awesome script that parsed the, the log file and replayed it, and it allowed them to actually do all sorts of cool stuff. And then it was an enabling thing, and it enabled people to do, and again, I like to say, learning based on like some sort of goals, and that's exploratory testing as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. They're basically diving in there and saying, hey, there's a log file. Let's try it in this situation. Let's try it in that situation. Let's try it in a controlled environment. And But you're taking the log from an uncontrolled environment, right? from the, the, the real world. All right. And that's for me, that's beautiful. It's, it's, um, it's very similar to what you're talking about, parsing something and generating transactions, which can then let you observe the behavior of the system in a way that's uh, realistic, but in a controlled environment. Right, which, which is, is sort of a cool way of thinking about it, you talk about the control and the observation, breaking those out separately, right? Because usually we think of, when we think of test automation, or I think a lot of people, they don't actually separate those in their mind. So they think of those as like, okay, the tool, the tool is gonna make this happen and make this happen and make this happen and then check that this happened. But it's like, well, wait a minute, there's, there's the making things happen and then there's the evaluating the result. There's the observation piece. And what you're pointing out there is I can use a tool to do control only. I can use a tool to do observation only. I can use a tool to do some of the control and some of the observation and humans yep. still in the loop. It's really awesome. I, I, I just, just, just like last week, Rex did some work in that area and it was, um, it was exploration and I needed a background process to run to tell me when a certain file was changed. Right. And this is, this to me is like a probe. Uh, a mm -hmm. deep sea probe, right? And it's yeah. trivial. It's like five lines of Python, but it, it's it sits in the background, and 
the, the script the to, to run it is really small. It's really teeny. But mm -hmm. what it does is it tells me, hey, Rob, this thing happened, and it sends me a message. And just having that is allowing me to observe things. And I tell you, with, with that sort of thinking, you can observe almost anything, any characteristic you want. You can, have a, you can have a little script running in the background to wait for it to happen and then tell you, hey, Rob, you know, someone corrupted this record. Hey, Rob, someone logged in. Hey, Rob, you're out of memory. Hey, Rob. And this, for me, is, is sort of like the beautiful, beautiful use of automation mm -hmm. to, to, to help, help you observe things that otherwise are hard to observe, including acuity, Rex. Like, like you want to measure things like in milliseconds? You can't do that with a right. stopwatch. You know, you got to sort of have a tool to help you. <laughs> and it don't have to be fancy. You don't have to go and spend $10,000 with a vendor to, to just write a little script. So I love to be able to, to build little snippets of, of technology, little snippets of automation that, that help me and really, what I said, leverage. It's a lever. It, it helps me see better. And so that's the observe part. And the other one, the, the, the playback is the control part. That'd be both, right? right. Control and observe. Right. And right. If, if you want to influence the, the team, get your developers for every single story they implement to make sure that whenever they change something in the application, there's an external way to observe and control it, hopefully through an exposed API, but that's me, that's my bias. I, that's how I like to do it. But any way <laughs> you want, just as long as you can control and observe it from outside, then you can automate something related to it in a testing uh, situation. Yeah, though, so of, of course, if you have a conversation with the security guys about <laughs> about what you just suggested, oh, yeah. they're, not like gonna be, they're not gonna be too keen on, oh yeah, you yeah. put an API in there so you can control the software. So that's right, you gotta, that's right. You gotta and, do and something you gotta about sensitive that. To that. And I don't wanna violate any security protocols. And I actually have, <laughs> uh, in my courses, I have a whole section before I dive in and tell them how to do this, I'd say, be careful. <laughs> Don't do this uh, in, in something that's going to be deployed to a customer. You're putting in a hook that a hacker is going to get at. Uh, right. You want to be able to do this carefully and in a safe way and not frivolously. That said, you can still do it, but you have to do it deliberately. So it's it's got to be really part of the system's architecture to be able to do it, not not just a hack code here and there. Right that, that, that uh, is tricky to, to use. But you'll see most architectures today, uh, Rex, are multi-tiered at least, oh, yeah. uh, or distributed, uh, or, or, or REST API. And th th therefore, implicitly, you have built into that architecture uh, some of these APIs that uh, your development team should be able to access as part of the process of development. Yeah. And they should be uh, uh, hard to access, <laughs> impossible to access, or even not exposed uh, to the outside world. Right. Well, I mean, you know, to, to the most obvious example, the most trivial example is lots of times there's going to be some sort of queryable data store um, mm -hmm. at the at the bottom of the whole architecture, right? And so, you know, you want to check to make sure that the right things are happening. You run a, run a query against database or, you know, uh, check for, for entries in the file somewhere, right? Any, yeah. These any are, these are of course, what my probes are doing, right? That's what my probes are doing. <laughs> Right, they're, they're doing that in the background, and the probe yep. is running on the server. Hopefully, that's under your control, not under your your customer's control. But this, people have done this in big scale too. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. I, I won't mention company names if you don't mind. Uh, I, I've worked with uh, Facebook, and I've seen some of the stuff they're doing, and they do have these probes running everywhere all the time, and they feed really cool information that uh, most people would have no clue what it's talking about. But it's <laughs> it's fed back to like. Uh, 
like a control center on the live software. It's just lots and lots of probes. Any one probe you make, it doesn't have to be a massively complex piece of software. Right. It could be a really cool thing. And it, uh, you know, you know, as I try, try to tell people, learning how to do scripting, I think, is a beautiful skill for people involved in software testing to, to have. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I encourage that, especially the, the younger generation, I think, uh, are well suited to it because of their technology focus. But even someone who's been testing for 25 years, I, I think you can still learn how to learn scripting languages. And that's a good oh, of course. Well, and I think you sort of, I mean, to remain relevant uh, these days, it's if you if you don't have enough technical skills to to script, to, you know, I mean, to me, ideally, you'd, you'd be able to read, at least read the programming languages that are being used on your projects, yeah. right? You, it just really marginalizes you if you if you can't do that. So one of the things that I was looking at very very again, this is like work I've been doing the last few days, Rex. So it's so topical. Uh, this is really a concern to people today. It's like really a big concern. Uh, and I say, if you don't know a scripting language and, and they want to know which one should I learn, I, I, I say, hey, you're on a team. What, what, which, pro, which languages, which scripting languages does your team use? Does, what are the programmers you're working with day by day use? And start with something like that and then you know, pair with them a little bit when you're trying to write your, your scripts. You, you don't have to spend eight months writing a design specification for a script, but you do have to know what you're looking for. So there's some, there's technical savvy involved just in even specifying what a script does. And right. <laughs> a programmer in, a, in an agile team, I think is an excellent way for someone who wants to learn scripting to, to go and picking a, a language or a technology that already is part of the, the parlance of the team. For example, if your team is using JavaScript every day, then start with JavaScript. If your team is using Python every day, well, start with Python or yeah. whatever. Ruby, start with Ruby. Pick, pick one that's already day by day used by the team so that you can pair with your, yeah. your, your teammates. Well, Python, yeah. Python's a good, a good bet too, because that's uh, just recently became the most uh, prominent programming language displacing Java a year or two ago. So it, it blows my mind, Python Rex, what you can do with Python is, is fantastic. And it's not because of the constructs of Python. It's because of the community and the beautiful, beautiful resources now available. Mm -hmm. I mean, the universe of big data, He's got Python tools and, and resources. The, the world of AI has Python tools and resources. Oh, yeah. The world of visualization has Python tools and resources. A any domain you can think of, there's fantastic resources available. And they're really uh, available and not too terribly tricky to learn. However, there's the risk, right? That's third-party stuff. They change it. you got a regression risk. <laughs> that's, but, that's true. That's true. I was just on a conference call earlier today with somebody and uh, that was something that's a topic that came up of like you know there was a change in the terms of the version of python and uh yeah potentially disruptive to them so it's hey. well, i've seen big problems over the years i mean with perl if you remember the history of that perl perl was changed all the time so your script stopped working and it was awful until a company came along, I remember it was called Active State. I'm pretty sure they're still in business. Mm. And they started making um, um, supported versions of open source tools and technologies. And I think that with Python, the, the core Python, I think, is well supported and is robust. But all of the tools and libraries, you've got to be careful if you're choosing to use one to make sure that there's going to be support for it You know, during the life of your project and make sure it's got a good history. Uh, the user communities do have, you know, 
open websites and share information. But if you go to the site and you see that every two weeks they're changing something and they're adding parameters and changing, that's risky. It's a red flag, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it's, it's cool for the guys who are advancing the technology saying, hey, we're advancing and evolving the technology. It's all cool. But it, but for the one who's trying to develop uh, tests, <laughs> sometimes it's a bit risky. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to encourage everybody in the audience, uh, think if, as you think of questions, go ahead and throw them into the Q&A panel because we're, uh, we're coming up on that time here. We're... Uh, we're going to open it up for uh, for audience questions. So start to start to throw them in there. And just to, just Rex, I just wanted to make sure we don't forget also that the the automation fits into other areas, right? Like for example, I use automation. I'll just give you a list here. I'm not going to dive in. I use automation to design tests, kick ass design tests, and I've got case studies of that being happening in some of the most important places, including Amazon AWS when they're doing their testing. They have tools to help design tests automatically. Uh, it's awesome stuff. I use uh, automation to help assess correctness. I told you the example from the medical and the fashion industries, but there's many, many ways to do it that automation really helps me with, including simple things like, uh, as you probably know what checksumming is, Rex, but oh, yeah. some things like that. Automatable, clean, really powerful. Uh, and then there's dynamic and static analysis. Today, yep. all the tools that is critical and beautiful. And that is something you can do in parallel to your other efforts to try to catch risks that maybe are going on you're not aware of. Yeah. Uh, probes I mentioned, and don't forget non-functional testing. How do you do really good non-functional testing, including stuff like standard stuff like performance and load testing, but then the world of security testing and also privacy testing, all that stuff. Uh, uh, there's so much automation support around those things. So it's not just functionality simulation uh, it, it, it's just lots of things, lots of risk we can explore right. and tools enable me to do it. Yeah. Like one of the non-functional test things that I've done before is you, you put, you, you, you create some load generators and they don't have to be very sophisticated, just, you know, something that puts a fair amount of background load on mm -hmm. the, the host systems and then have your um, users run either, either pre-designed tests or exploratory tests and, or not your users, your testers, right? Um, mm -hmm. Run these pre-designed or exploratory tests and, and keep their eye out for misbehaviors and, you know, bad user experience and so forth. It's just basically driven by the fact that there's too much load, you know? Exactly, Rex. That's beautiful. That's exactly what I do. In fact, almost the way you describe it is exactly how I describe it to people. Generate <laughs> load. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's not this pristine load. It's just good load. And, and I don't want to start using terminology that's funky, but let's say good enough load for the purposes of, of keeping the system busy. And then see, how does your, like, do you're, do you're exploring this feature, that feature, that thing, but while load is going on, and you're going to start seeing realistic behavior of this system. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're the only guy using it and there's no load, yeah, that's nice. It might behave well. <laughs> load, and suddenly you're going to start finding real exposure of cool, cool problems that, that are there but they're not going to jump out if, if you're sort of the only guy logged in. So I yeah. love doing, I love yep. doing that type of stuff. Yeah. It's great stuff. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's not um, hard, by the way to do Rex, you know, just Oh no, no, I know. Yeah. I mean, automation like that with uh, J meter. And if you know a little Java <laughs> and J meter and, and maybe a little selenium. Yep. You can whip that off. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've written those kinds of background load generators. You, you know, I basically would have, you know, one for CPU and one for for uh, disk and, you know, one for uh, memory and one for network bandwidth and so forth. 
And then, you know, usually try to have some dials on them that allowed me to kind of put some sleep periods in there to kind of reduce the load or, you know, take the sleep periods out to increase the load. And yeah, I mean, you know, you know, you're talking about, I don't know, maybe 500 lines of code total across all your load generators, you know, that's really cool. That's, it's Mm -hmm. beautiful stuff. I, yep. And I mean, frankly, I, I I don't want to put down vendors here. It's the last thing I want to do, but I've seen a lot of people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on tools, and you start thinking what, what you just described, which you can whip off in a couple of days uh, with, right. with open source tools and, and well known technologies. Uh, you're doing exactly <laughs> what they need without yeah. the hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. No ongoing maintenance costs. Well, it's, you know, you got to consider things. It is important to be able to repeat these tests. And if you're in a regulated environment, you have to actually be be careful about, you know, evidence of what you did. So that's true. There's reasons I I, I do, like I said, I don't want to diss vendors here. There's things, there's reasons for for having uh, commercial tools that have sort of um, good log files and uh, trend analysis and stuff like that, which you don't get from the open source tools. Uh, so I, 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 there's a reason for it, but if you just want to sort of uh, realistically good bugs uh, uh, as you're working and the day by day work in sprint, by the way, not like 10 weeks after the sprint, that's the way to go, Rex. And that's yeah. really being able to use automation to help with some really, really tricky non-functional stuff. And yeah. I would argue also security testing too. load the system like that, like you described, and then do your security test. Take right. all the James Whitaker security attacks and try them, but as you vary the load, and that's really cool. Right, right, yeah, good, good points. So, um, let's see, I think we were originally scheduled for thirty minutes, and we got started a little bit late. Um, well, we started a little bit funky too. <laughs> yeah, started late and started funky, but I do want to kind of want, start to wind it up. Um, Thank you. So, um, any sort of uh, uh, final thoughts on that last bullet point there about? Uh, you know, how automation can can facilitate and improve the efficiency of our exploratory testing that we haven't yes, talked about. I, I have one comment I'm going to make here, and it's it, I don't want to open up a 10-hour discussion of it, but I think that <laughs> what, what I encourage people to do is while they're doing exploratory testing, especially uh, reconnaissance, which is learning uh, things that you don't know about that may not be necessarily well-documented, right? Mm-hmm. But you have to learn about it. Uh, create nuggets of scripts as you go. <laughs> Create little nuggets, and, and I'm inspired by Weinberg's Fieldstone book, the, the Fieldstone approach to writing. Jerry Weinberg wrote a book on that. And what, what it was suggesting is that collect Fieldstones. Fieldstones are what people, like in Quebec, where I live, they, they basically, farmers uh, have them in their fields. They collect them, and then they build beautiful houses out of them, like beautiful houses out of Fieldstones. But the Fieldstones are, you select them as you go for a purpose, like that's gonna be a good stone for this wall, that's gonna be a good stone for the fireplace, that's gonna be a good stone for the chimney. And so while you're doing your exploratory testing, write little scripts, and it's not creating a, a library of scripts, it's creating a collection of exemplars that are gonna facilitate you as you go in your testing. So I think that's one technique in automation and, and using a scripting language mostly. And, and any of the types of tests we talked about, co- collect the field stones. And build, you can build from that then beautiful, beautiful uh, automation as you go. And you'll also know how to uh, programmatically control and observe the, the parts of the application in question. So that's a little nugget I want people to take away. Uh, build field stones. The tools, whatever tools you're comfortable with, right? Uh, it, it could be uh, you know fancy tools that know a lot about the technology, like a REST API management software. Or it could be just a, a, a generic programming language like Java. 
but um, build little nuggets as you explore to control and observe parts of the system. And that will be, I think, an amazing resource for you. Cool. Well, that's a, that's a good closing thought. Apparently we have been so um, um, engrossing to our audience that uh, nobody can think of any questions because we've, uh, we've answered all of them or something along those lines. So um, I will go ahead and wind it up then. Um, so Rob, thanks for your time and for your patience with the, uh, well, thanks, uh, thanks, thanks for uh, inviting me, Rex. And this is a talk that's close to my heart. So if you ever want to talk about <laughs> it, it's awesome. And uh, if the community has questions, uh, you'll, uh, I guess, they'll get in touch with through you. I'm delighted to follow up offline afterwards. And I have uh, examples of the type of stuff I'm talking about that I share with my usually my students. That if anyone wants to see examples of the field stones or scripts I'm talking about, I, I share them with my students. Uh, anyone can contact you. And I'll be happy to share. Well, turns out we do have one late breaking question. So you got a, you got a minute? I'm here for you. Okay. So let's, we'll take this one and then we'll, we'll uh, close it out. So we've got a question from Brian who says, we're using eggplant to generate automated tests. I'm finding it difficult to share scripts among the test engineers, even though our system environments are supposed to be the same, something is different. So the other engineers tests fail to run. Any thoughts on how to combat this problem? Sounds like a configuration management issue yeah, to me. I have, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, um, it's interesting. So you're generating tests in one environment and trying to run them in someone else's environment. Uh, and there's something that's different. So this is a problem that's been faced by software testing and software engineers that I was first exposed to probably 1979 to 1982 era. Uh, when I really had to hit my head against the wall and I still hit my head against the wall with it over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's, there's two, two elements to this. First of all, it's, it's your uh, programming style <laughs> uh, it, where you, you basically have um, issues that are, there's a dependency there somewhere that's different. Maybe it's the name of an object or maybe it's something else. So if it's important for you to be able to run this from any machine, then you got to think of it from a point of view of your architecture. And uh, that's, that's what I've learned. Uh, and, and sort of say, okay, well, maybe to get rid of this problem or to turn it into control, I got to break it into what is the dependency and what is not dependent on the environment and separate them. Uh, best resources on that uh, that I know of is the work of Alan Richardson, who's written several books on the topic. And um, I don't have his URL by heart, but there's, there's people who show you how to design your scripts so that you separate the dependencies from the, the logic. So it's, what is the test logic versus what is the environmental dependencies? Mm -hmm. And so decoupling them is, is one way to minimize this problem, not to avoid it, but think of this as a blessing. When you have this problem, every time you have this problem, if you can think of the exploratory testing mindset, if I can give you to learn from it and say, okay, I gave it to this, this tester, you can't run it. Why? Learn why. And then that's an environmental dependency and decouple it. And so the next time you're always going to have that sort of decoupled. <laughs> and there's, believe me, I've done this compatibility problem for years and years and years. It's not going to go away. And you, if you try to write something that is general purpose that writes on any platform in the world, you're never going to get the job done. <laughs> so you have to learn and learn and learn. And, and uh, if there's 10 factors in your organization that matter, maybe it's the network protocol, maybe it's the type of operating system, maybe it's the version of some tool but that becomes a dependency and you learn from every single time it fails. 
And then you'll, you'll be able to evolve this. And it doesn't take 60 iterations. It takes a few to, to get good. But uh, you could also follow the school of thought where you have to architect everything. And Dorothy Graham's book on uh, patterns for test automation, which was published about two years ago, Rex. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yep. Uh, she's got in there over 100 different patterns, which are almost all designed to try to avoid that problem. Mm. Uh, but that's more leaning towards regression type of stuff, right? So like, there's a difference between a, a test that you want to make maintain and run forever <laughs> or a test that you want to use for the job at hand. Right, and right. I, I'm, those are just some tips. But it's a beautiful question. It's the right question. Thank you. Cool. Well, um, other than Brian, we seem to have answered everybody else's questions, <laughs> or they're they're just agog at uh, the the uh, quantity of wisdom poured out here. <laughs> um, or, or, or no one's or no one's there. <laughs> oh no, they're they're there, um, right, and and cool. most of them stayed late. We only lost a few people at the thirty minute mark, but uh, I do want to wind this down. So to Thank all you, who uh, all who came, I uh, hope you enjoy this uh, uh, this. Uh, a free webinar from RBCS. Uh, we do these as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not just for profit company. So if you know, enjoy our free webinars and feel that they demonstrate solid insights into the kinds of testing challenges you face, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting or training. Happy to provide a quote for any such help you need. Our coordinates are shown on the screen here. Uh, if you're looking for information about uh, a specific thing, a quote, for example, uh, the email info at rbcs-us.com is the place to go. So Rob, uh, once again, thank you very much for your time and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you in, in person someday soon when we all get uh, poked in the arm once or twice. We'll, we'll, we'll have to pick up our projects and get together again soon. Yep. Thank you and thank you everybody and stay healthy. Yes, avoid the COVID. Thanks everybody. All right. Bye. Ciao.